Attention, this is not legal advice. If you are experiencing a legal emergency, contact an attorney or your local public defender's office. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Gin and Justice. talk about justice hey i'm justine and i'm amanda welcome to another legal brief with gin and justice hey have you left us a review if you have not it's a great (laughs) new year's resolution for 2023 (laughs) leave gin and justice a review super easy obtainable goals (laughs) (laughs) then you can check it off your list or you can erase it off your whiteboard whatever whatever you keep your list and your goals on No, but seriously, it really does help to elevate the stories that we share on here, which are super important. Remember, we like to share the stories that traditional media often forgets, um, how the criminal justice system impacts those who are actually in it. We believe that it's a system of people and those impacted by it. So um, make sure to leave us a review so we can elevate these really important stories that we share. Yeah. With that being said, I have a super important case I want to delve into, but I know you have something as well. So if you want to start out. You'll never believe it, but I'm going to talk about the death penalty again. (laughs) So am I, actually. Oh, well, good. (laughs) I'm going to talk about Alabama. Freaking Alabama again. Yeah, I'll be talking about Missouri. (laughs) That's another bad one. So my article that I'm going to be talking about is in The Atlantic, and it was written by Elizabeth Brunig, and the headline is, Alabama makes plans to gas its prisoners. After a series of botched executions, the state is choosing a path of technical rather than moral innovation. Critics called 2022 the year of botched execution, and it indeed was, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) And it was indeed an infamous period, mainly because of the state of Alabama has lost its ability to competently kill prisoners in its charge while retaining sovereignty to try. So then she goes on to talk about how they executed Joe Nathan James Jr. Which I think we talked about. Yeah, we did. It was botched. They did kill him, though. But it took like several hours. It took a long time. And then it didn't come out until the autopsy that they had stuck him everywhere. Right. Um. It was, like, bad, bad. Also, not that I'm complaining, but it's weird that they would do an autopsy. Right. (laughs) I mean, it's good that they did, but it's just, you know. The need for one when you are supposed to be doing this humane, very, yeah. Anyway. So, this writer was there for the autopsy. And after all of, seeing all of that, she decided to attend the next scheduled execution. She talks about that. And that was for... Alan Eugene Miller, and that one was botched, and they were unsuccessful. And that one, I think, was like pretty. To- I think we talked about that one as well. It was pretty torturous. That one, pretty cruel and unusual. If you catch my drift, mm-hmm. it was after an hour or more of failed attempts that they exhausted their efforts. Yeah, and for our listeners, uh, when the governor signs a death warrant or signs off on somebody to be executed, you know, the day of, it expires at a certain time. So you only have like a certain Mm -hmm. time period. So um, if the governor says, okay, state of 
Alabama, you can execute, you know, Joe Smith here on January 10th, 2023. You have to get it done by that day. If you are going past midnight, you have to stop what you're doing. So it's a weird, Mm -hmm. weird technical thing on signing off on people's death if you're the government, I suppose. Yeah, I just don't fucking get it. Even though they failed at killing Alan Eugene Miller, they scheduled the death of Kenneth Smith for November. They failed again to execute him. And the writer actually spoke with him later that night when he was back in his cell. And he told her that his would-be executioners had pierced him in his arms, hands, and finally his neck underneath his collarbone before abandoning their efforts. And then she goes on to write, at that point, Alabama finally acknowledged what had been clear to me since early August. Inside the state's execution chamber, there's a crisis deserving of investigative review. On November 21st, Governor Kay Ivey ordered a temporary halt of executions so that the Alabama Department of Corrections could assess its execution methodology and personnel before moving forward. We did talk about that a little bit, too. But it's not to say that Alabama is evolving. If notions of progress were distributed evenly among the states, this would be the point in the story where I would be able to report that the series of botched executions had caused Alabama's leaders to consider abandoning the death penalty altogether. Instead, Alabama is choosing a path of technical rather than moral innovation. The state appears to be preparing to premiere a new kind of execution by lethal gas. In the gas chambers of old little cells were filled with poison and eventually destroy the organs of the trapped prisoners, resulting in death. Now, Alabama proposes a nitrogen gas to replace the oxygen to kill via hypoxia, an untested method once imagined in a National Review article and made manifest in a plastic gas mask. Chief Justice Earl Warren made certain presumptions about the relationship between moral and technical progress. And that presumption shaped his interpretation of the Eighth Amendment, which bans cruel and unusual punishment. It went like this. As societies develop, their moral sensibilities tend to become more refined as well. Or, as Warren put it in writing in Trope v. Duels, the amendment must draw its meaning from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. In other words, Americans ought to aspire to be more and more humane means of punishment. And the law ought to be understood and cooperative in that effort. And yet, though several methods of execution have fallen into disfavor across history, the Supreme Court has never formally banned one, instead allowing states to choose many archaic ways to kill prisoners. Mm -hmm. Lethal gas, for example, remains an artifact of the past and a specter of the future. Both lethal injections inferior predecessor and current statutory alternative in a small number of states, Alabama among them. America's execution with gas began roughly 100 years ago at the outset of the century that would witness the industrial level use of cyanide in Germany's death camps. Scott Christensen's book, The Last Gas, The Rise and Fall of the American Gas Chamber, notes an inflection point in the American experiment with gas in March of 1921 when Nevada's governor Emmett Boyle signed the Humane Execution Bill into law, requiring future executions to be carried out with lethal gas. Well, you know what I say. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) When in doubt and you need a new idea, look to Germany World War II. (laughs) Like, okay. (laughs) The new law endeavored to replace older, uglier methods 
hanging and execution with a manner of dying that was promised to be painless and bloodless. Instead, on February 8, 1924, Nevada prison officials led Chinese immigrant Ji John to a converted stone barber house that was flooded with a gaseous form of hydrocyanic acid, commonly known as cyanogen, a highly toxic substance. I'm probably saying that wrong. A highly toxic substance used industrially to manufacture fertilizer and exterminate insects. Witnesses watched through a brick outbuilding window that morning as G gasped and convulsed amid a haze of lethal gas that filled the chamber. The military physician who observed the execution that day would later report that the death house's heating had failed, causing the gas to partially liquefy rather than vaporize, then collect on the floor of the chamber where it remained in a deadly pool for hours after Guy's death. The same physician would also later speculate that Guy, who had been poisoned on that frigid day at roughly 9.45 a.m., and who was not removed from shackles until afternoon, had likely died from cold and exposure. Mm. Nevertheless, the execution was hailed as a coup for progress. After the bodies twisting on nooses and smoking under electrocution hoods, there was a scientific, humane execution method. Around the world, people took note. Oh, and you know what's interesting is that time period, too. Remember when we taught the class on the death penalty and Mm -hmm. kind of like the history of the death penalty Mm -hmm. and then in relation to the court cases? Mm -hmm. um, That also kind of lines up with roughly around the same time that public execution stopped being the method and it kind of turned inwards hidden behind prison Mm -hmm. walls and so it wasn't so much about um you know the shame and humiliation as it ah that it's weird that Mm -hmm. that all kind of lines up around the same time period Mm -hmm. so around the world people took note in soviet russia leon trotsky was certain that america would soon turn its dastardly weapons on revolutionary europe In Germany, the news was met with great interest by researchers for the cyanide industry and budding fascists alike. Oh, well, never mind. Then Hitler got the idea from us. (laughs) Oh, well, that's good. (laughs) You know what I say? It's always good to inspire (laughs) Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) More than 600 people have died in American gas chambers since Nevada's 1924 experiment. That's so fucking gross. Remarkably, states used gas to execute prisoners even after the term gas chamber became synonymous with Nazi Germany. Through the chamber had promised instantaneous and painless death. The ugliness and risk of its application eventually made it the country's shortest-lived method of execution. Deborah Dino, a professor at Fordham University School of Law, told me, In a plain view of witnesses, prisoners died screaming, convulsing, groaning, and coughing their hands clawing at their restraints, their eyes bulging, and their skin turning cyanotic. The last of them, Walter Legrand, was killed in Arizona in 1999. Despite the length of time separating his death from Guise, he endured a similarly troubled execution. Legrand, a German-born American who was convicted of murder, gagged and hacked, and then died over a course of 18 minutes. Knowing what prison authorities intended to do well before they strapped Legrand into the black harness that would contain his body as he choked on the poisonous gas, the government then German Chancellor Gerard Schroeder had tried diplomatic interventions to save this man's life. The irony was lost on Arizona. Alabama has something slightly different in mind. Nitrogen hypoxia is the dream of Stuart Cricu. Cric- Cric- I don't know how to say this guy's name. 
Stewart, let's just call him Stewart, a technology consultant and filmmaker in 1995, proposed the method in an article for the National Review in which he speculated optimistically about the ease and comfort of a gas-induced death. After, how sick? Like, how sick do you have to be? <laughs> After hearing about the potential of nitrogen hypoxia as a lethal agent in the BBC documentary, Oklahoma State Representative Mike Christian brought the idea before Oklahoma's legislator in 2014 as an alternative to lethal injection. Oklahoma passed a law permitting the use of nitrogen hypoxia as a backup method of execution in the event that lethal injection could no longer be carried out. Mississippi passed similar legislation in 2017. Alabama followed in 2018 with Missouri, California, Wyoming, and Arizona. These three nitrogen-curious newcomers make up a handful of governments that could begin attempting to execute people with legal gas at any time. Alabama is by no means the ablest of these states, but it is among the more eager. Since the governor announced the execution moratorium pending the investigation, Alabama's Attorney General, Steve Marshall, has been adamant that the killings will resume as soon as possible. Let's be clear, Marshall recently said in a press conference he called to dispense his thoughts on the subject. This needs to be expedited and done quickly because we have victims' families right now asking when we will be able to set the next date and I need to give them answers, adding that justice delayed is justice denied. I, I disagree, sir. I very highly doubt that there are victims calling him, asking him when execution dates are going to be set. They're probably I like, just, why like, do you keep doing this to us? Why do you keep bringing this up? Why can't we just let this fucking end? Why can't you just leave us the fuck alone? That's right. probably what they're like every time I'm you call sure. them to let them know something else has happened and you re-traumatize them over and over and over again. Right. That's my thoughts on it, personally. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Or they're like the great, great ancestors since it takes, you know, 40 years to execute somebody. Right. And they're like, okay. Right. <laughs> Thanks for letting us know what's going on with great grandma bevels. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know where I got that name from. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> from the depths of your brain. Uh this is really not a laughing matter, though. I just no, it's really not. But you know, if we really don't laugh not. about it, we'll probably just kill ourselves. Go crazy because <laughs> it's fucking sad. Yeah. Court papers provide clues about where Marshall's instance upon speedy executions translates to interest in gas. Earlier this year, Marshall's deputy attorney general. James Hout brandished a gas mask during the deposition of Alan Eugene Miller. God, this is so fucking traumatizing. And asked Miller if he would cooperate if the prison officials attempted to fit his face with the mask or if he would become upset by the process. A witness to the event described the mask as a large plastic covering that would obscure most of the face, which was locked in place by a wide lime green strap arrayed around the mask like a fixture of a headlamp. Houts all but assured Miller's attorneys and the district court judge that Alabama would be prepared to execute Miller on September 22nd of this year via nitrogen hypoxia, though he could not say directly and unequivocally that the state had actually finished developing its nitrogen hypoxia execution protocol. Unsurprisingly, Alabama officials weren't ready, and thus they attempted to kill Miller this fall with the usual cocktail of lethal injection drugs piped in via needle. Still, their presentation with the gas mask during Miller's proceedings demonstrated something useful about their approach. Unlike the gas houses of yesteryear, the state is evidently prepared to use a sealed mask attached to some source of nitrogen gas 
in order to induce hypoxia in a restrained prisoner. For this method of execution to kill successfully, the state will need to access the mask, the tubing, nitrogen gas, or its precursors, a sealed chamber for the safety of the bystanders, and a detailed plan. Nitrogen is cheap and widely available. And then it goes in to talk about how nitrogen being stored places has led to multiple deaths and hospitalizations, how it's dangerous to employees that will have to store it and be around it, about how air gas is refusing to participate in killing of people. And then she finishes it by saying Alabama will need to finish protocol, taking all of the above into account before getting ready to execute the first American by nitrogen hypoxia. As of this fall, state officials seem to not have one. It would take certain audacity to be the first state to test an unknown means of execution immediately following three consecutive botched executions. But Alabama's administrators are nothing but audacious. Uh, I do want to note that they secured the funding to build these gas chambers with COVID funds. If you recall a couple years ago or whatever on Illegal Brief, we talked about that, how Alabama was using COVID funds to build, to expand DOC and build gas chambers. Well, now they're not so. going to use the gas chambers. Now they're going to use these masks, it would appear. Uh, Gross. This yeah. is America. 2023. I also want to talk about the death penalty, but specifically, I want to talk about the recent execution of Amber McLaughlin. Can we just take a deep breath first? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, we are taking a deep breath. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so I want to talk about the recent execution of Amber McLaughlin, what people believe to be the first openly transgender person who was executed. Mm -hmm. And so, um, one, this piqued my interest because obviously it's a death penalty case. Two, learning that Amber had transitioned in prison piqued my interest because, uh, in all honesty, I didn't know that was something that prisons would allow access to i didn't know that's actually kind of shocking that any prison right yeah in in this prison was specifically in missouri and so i started looking into the case the other thing that made me look into it was every article i read was really just focused on you know oh first openly transgender person executed you know by the u.s but there was no information about the underlying crime about the case anything like that and so i started digging and digging and digging and digging for several days uh, i got really sucked into it just trying <laughs> to find out as much information as i could and um, i actually was able to pull up the court document not all the court documents but the specifically the opinions of the appellate courts which details a lot of what happened with the trial court etc as you know, um, and as I'm sure our listeners know, in death penalty cases, there are several appeals. And so I was able to read through several of Amber's appeals to figure out what really went on in the case. And sadly, this case is marked by childhood trauma, um, intellectual disability or lower functioning, um, as a lot of them health. Are. Yeah, and so that's a lot of what was going on prior to this case. And so what I learned was Amber, whose dead name is Scott, so all of the documents are under Scott McLaughlin, was born in the 70s to a prostitute and an alcoholic. And 
at some point in their youth was put through several foster homes and then ultimately adopted by a couple, uh, the father figure being a cop. Um, unfortunately, the adoptive parents were also abusive um, mm. of Amber and the court documents and, of course, the um, penalty phase of the trial detailed a lot of what they had went through as a child. The father cop figure, father figure cop, adoptive father, whatever we want to call this person, actually would use his nightstick and taser. I would on... like to call him a piece of shit. Yeah. And also would like lock the food and they would put locks on the uh, refrigerator and the cupboards. Um, he also would paddle Amber with a paddle that he would call the Board of Education. Jesus Christ. Something specific that came out during that and at just nine years old amber had started seeing amber who at the time was scott had started mm -hmm. seeing a psychiatrist for some behavioral issues those actually two psychiatrists those actually ended up testifying at the penalty phase which is where jurors decide whether there are aggravating factors and whether it warrants a death sentence and they had basically testified about the childhood trauma, all of that, that at the time Scott was low functioning, was intellect, potentially intellectually disabled, had severe childhood trauma that had led to an attachment disorder. And so anytime there was um, any type of fear of abandonment, it would cause them to act out, um, sometimes violently. Mm -hmm. And so at the time of the crime that Amber was put to death for, um, which I'll get into a little bit as well. Amber was actually seeing a physician for these disorders. However, sadly, could not afford the medication and so would only receive the medication when they went to the doctor, which I'm assuming is probably once a month or once every you know couple of weeks, whatever it was. That's mm -hmm. the only time that they got this medication. These were all kind of some factors on the mental health side. You know, when it came to the actual crime that Amber was put to death for, it was the murder and rape of a girlfriend. It was a pretty violent murder. Essentially, there was a tumultuous relationship going on for maybe a little over a year, I think it was. And the victim's name was Beverly Gunther. And it was a series of, you know, on again, off again. And what would happen was you know, formerly Scott would show up at her work, would, uh, you know, broke into her house allegedly to what they said was to retrieve items, you know, after the breakup, mm -hmm. uh, ultimately be served time, maybe it was placed on probation for that case um, right before the death. There was a series of restraining orders that Beverly had gotten. And so what had happened was the day before they were supposed to have a hearing on what was the restrict, like the permanence, what it sounds like, because of course, Missouri's wording is a little different than Florida's. So what sounds like the permanency of the injunction or the restraining order the day before is when Amber had showed up at Beverly's work in the parking lot. There was some type of conversation and ultimately Amber had reacted out of I'm assuming fear of abandonment is what mm -hmm. it sounded like based on what the defense had put on at the penalty phase and had, you know, stabbed and cut uh, Beverly multiple times, had attempted to, through through Beverly's body in the back of their car, um, attempted to throw Beverly in the river 
couldn't make it through all of the thick brush and wooding and so ultimately just left Beverly's body kind of close to a river. They suspected Amber, basically interrogated, confronted, and then Amber ultimately confessed and led authorities to the body. And so I had read through a series of, of course, motions that we read about in our exoneration episodes, mm-hmm. you know, the series of how many right. appeals and, you know, ineffective assist of, of counsel mm-hmm. uh, motions and all of that that were filed. And so and that's kind of where I gathered all this information. And so there were a couple appeals that actually went up for review. And one of them in particular was really interesting. So first and foremost, what is really interesting about this particular case in this state you know if there's anything that could come up for review that should alone be enough to squash the chance of killing somebody you know well so this is actually really interesting and something that i learned from the court documents was missouri and the other state that allows this i don't know if they still allow this but at the time this this murder happened in 2003 the case was happening in 2004 i think it ultimately went to trial in maybe 2006 if i'm not mistaken so the the these states i think it's missouri and indiana i believe are the two states definitely missouri as we've talked about before in death penalty cases, right? You have the two phases. You have the first, the guilt phase, which is a typical trial where the jury hears the evidence mm-hmm. of the case. They come back with either guilty or not guilty. And then if they're found guilty, then it moves on to the second phase, which is the penalty phase, which is where mitigation and aggravating factors are presented. The jury determines whether the aggravating circumstances are present and whether they warrant a death sentence. And then they recommend, you know, whether it's life in prison mm-hmm. or death. And so that's in every case that has and every state that has a death penalty has those two phases. Well, in Missouri, what had happened with this particular case, McLaughlin, was the jury did not come to a unanimous decision on which aggravating factors were present. They did have an agreement that there were aggravating factors. But they couldn't agree recall, on what they were. They couldn't they did not unanimously agree on what they were. No. And so no. What happened was there was a hung jury on the penalty phase, not on the guilt phase, uh-huh. on the aggravating factors penalty phase. The judge, even though the jury did not recommend a, a death or a life sentence because they were uh, so hung jury, up, dude. That's so the up. judge then took the power into his own hands and sentenced what was Scott McLaughlin to death. And so that was part of the appeal was, hey, the jury didn't recommend a death sentence. That's this fucking is like insane, a weird, dude. funky thing in Missouri law, you know, whatever. And that was part of the reason it went up. Well, they found that that the judge could do that in, in this particular state because that is how their law was set up. Because they what they said was there was an agreement that there were aggravating circumstances. It just wasn't unanimous on what those circumstances were. Oh my God. And so, so that's I'm what sorry, but if you can't case. agree on what those circumstances are, then you don't agree that any of them right. exist in my book. Right. Right. So, um, so there's Holy that. Shit. Some other issues that came up regarding the penalty phase was that, um, so they had, you know, a couple of different psychiatrists. They had the ones that saw Amber when they were nine. They had, um, the one that was presenting, as the presiding physician at the time of the crime. And then there was this other one that was supposed to testify was an expert that had been recommended by the mitigation, you know, expert that the defense team had hired. 
and would have basically testified that Amber was uh, experiencing this, you know, specific psychotic break at the time of the crime. And so therefore was less culpable. And that's what that expert would have testified to. So, you know, they had interviewed the expert. They got his curriculum vitae, kind of looked at everything. The defense was like on board with having him. They listed him as a witness for the penalty phase. Everything was, you know, good. They were like, yep, this guy sounds good. And then as they got up to the actual penalty phase, like I, it was the week of, right? He had already been listed. The penalty phase has already started. He discloses to the defense team some impeachable evidence and says, hey, by the way, there's this thing that happened um, quite a few years ago at the beginning of my career. I was accused of an investigative for falsifying a lab report. And so I just wanted to let you know that um, because it is. But here's a list of revival questions where if this does come out, um, here's a way to kind of revive that. So the defense team decided not to put that person Uh. up. So, and this was already, you know, the penalty phase is already going. Wow. There's no, right? Like this is kind of a moment, like a make or break moment. So they ended up, they made a tactical decision not to use this person. So one of the reasons that this was brought up in the appeal was that the defense team is what Amber argued was that the defense team should have looked into impeachable evidence um, prior to listing this person, deciding they were going to use this person, et cetera. I agree. Um, it was a matter I would have of to agree in- with Amber. <laughs> well, it was a matter of first impression for the courts, and they decided that the defense team sh- does not have to research impeachable evidence um, prior to listing somebody as, you know, an expert or whatever. So, and that because they met their burden of listing the required amount of experts at the, of using the required amount of experts at the penalty phase, that Mm -hmm. it was not harmless error or that it was harmless error. You know, even if it was an error, it was harmless error. And so therefore it didn't amount to an appeal, et cetera. So um, one of the other issues that was brought up that I found really interesting, and these are a couple different appeals. I'm just kind of placing the main issues that Mm -hmm. I gathered out of them uh, together. So Amber alleges that the defense team failed to call a couple of witnesses, lay witnesses, which is normal people witnesses, that Mm -hmm. would have testified that the... So one of the reasons that it became a death penalty case, right? One of the aggravating factors that was presented was that they're alleging that... (laughs) One of the, um, quote, aggravating factors. Right. And so so Amber was charged with forcible rape of the girlfriend that was murdered. Okay. And so they're saying that during the rape, which is a felony, uh, uh-huh. was a forcible felony is when the murder occurred. And so that's what makes it a, one of the death penalty circumstances. And so okay. one of the things that Amber argued on appeal was that if Amber had not committed the rape, then it wouldn't have been a death penalty case. It would have just been a life in prison case. And so there was DNA that was found in the girlfriend. Now, Amber had a brother uh, named Billy McLaughlin. And so there was apparently some testimony that was given at the time of the trial that there was an extra allele found in the DNA sequence. The DNA expert that the state had gotten to testify essentially was not able to separate the male and female genetic code. And I'm like totally going off of uh, my non-scientific brain. Mm -hmm. So some of this wording may not be correct wording, but it's just kind of what I gathered. Mm-hmm. They, the scientist was unable to separate 
the male and female and so had to use only certain portions of the you know genetic mixture to figure out which part of it was the male and so essentially had kind of explained the extra allele could have been a machine error or just like a, a non-separation error but also was able to testify that that amber could not be excluded as a contributor to the dna mixture so uh, Amber's argument was that there were some witnesses who could have testified that, you know, months later that Amber's brother, Billy, told them. So we have a little bit of hearsay here, um, which may be why some of this couldn't have come in, mm -hmm. yeah. um, that he was present at the time of the murder and was the one who raped the girlfriend. And so there oh were three God. separate people who would have testified to that. And the defense brought did not bring them in. They did interview them. They did try to get in some of them. And the court uh, actually denied those people from being able to come in because they said it didn't fit the specific requirements it needed to in order to overcome hearsay, mm -hmm. to overcome hearsay exceptions. And so um, unfortunately, the appeal on that aspect was denied because the defense team did actually try to bring in those witnesses and just were not allowed to. So, um, so that was really interesting. And so they mm. had a DNA expert kind of on one of the appeals saying, Hey, like, you know, the brother could have been a contributor to DNA just as much as Amber right. could have been. And so, so yeah, so that was really interesting. All of that essentially got denied. So there were a lot of really interesting issues that were brought up during the several appeals that Amber was able to bring. And a lot of them were heard. And unfortunately, sadly, uh, the I think one of the very first ones she wrote about the whole uh, jury issue, right? Where the jury didn't recommend a death sentence, mm -hmm. and then the uh, you know judge went over that. That was the original appellate court. The district court said, "Yeah, no, this is wrong. This is not okay. So we're going to overturn the death sentence." And then, of course, the state appealed. And when it went up to the next level court is when they said, oh, no, this is allowed because of, you know, their legal reasoning for why they said that was allowed. So, man. Yeah. So um, <laughs> a lot of really interesting. It just these you know, are all makes... reasons why this shouldn't exist. Right. Right. And so it was sad because, you know, I really had to dig through court documents to find what, you know, Amber's side of the story because mm -hmm. so, and so yeah so what we had with amber right she had severe trauma through not only her biological parents but then through her i'm sure foster ones. care and definitely her adoptive ones and then we had a an iq of 79 so very low functioning uh we have a history and a you know right up through of mental health mm -hmm. issues we have some attachment disorders we mm -hmm. have things that she had severe been being treated disorders. for since she was nine right there her her adoptive parents thought there was something so wrong with her at nine years old that they brought her to multiple psychiatrists. So mm -hmm. these were not just issues that had popped up, you know, at this time and, right. you know, was a bad breakup and caused a murder. This is somebody who has had severe issues that had been trying to get treatment, could not afford medication at the time of the murder, and so was only getting medication maybe monthly. And so, yeah, it's just a really sad case of Again, uh, some states don't allow for somebody with an IQ of 79 to be put to death. Uh, Missouri obviously is not one of them. Uh, Florida is one of them that would put somebody who's severely mentally ill Shocker. or has mental health disorders. Um, you know, so so that I think is really important to bring to Amber's story, not just that uh, she was the first openly transgender prisoner or person on death row uh, to transition 
and be put to death. I don't think that's the focal point. I think, you know, that's definitely what intrigued me because me being totally ignorant, uh, didn't know that that was something that could occur in prisons. And so that's kind of what drew me in. And really when you look into, the more you look into Amber's case, it's really just a lot of, uh, trauma and sadness. And, you know, we, we are starting to commonality between all of them. Yeah. Really? So a lot of trauma and mental health and, and then you have a violent murder and that's, you know, unfortunately that's what trauma and unhealed mental health can do to somebody. So anyway, so I just, I wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit. You can pull up most of the, or a good portion of the appellate documents online. And again, the dead name is Scott McLaughlin and it was in Missouri. So you should be able to pull up some, if you are interested to kind of learn more and you can also email me because some of it is on Westlaw, which is a lawyer database, legal database that I have access to that I was able to pull it up on. So if you are more interested and want to see the full opinions, I can uh, email you a PDF. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah so let's anyways, the death penalty. Y'all. Yeah. Let's renew 2023 by saying we don't want the death penalty. We are a civilized society and we recognize that childhood trauma and mental health affects people in negative ways. And as such, we are not going to stand here and allow the government to have that much power. Where's all my anti-government people, the people who don't want the Mm -hmm. government to be big? You know what's a huge power that the government has? To kill people. And that's not like the biggest. Really? (laughs) uh, I'm not cool with the government having that much power. I don't care how guilty somebody is. Um, I'm not cool with the government having that much power. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should be as a society in 2023 giving the government the power to say who lives and who dies. That's not okay Mm -hmm. to me. Um, mm-hmm. so let's renew Gross. our push to abolish the death penalty. Yep. Um, and, uh, hopefully that's something we can get done in 2023. Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, we will see you next week on gin and justice. Um, bye. <laughs> All editing for gin and justice done by gin and justice podcast. Artwork by Justin Cardone. Photography by Kimber Schwakey. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice.